forget everything else and just say it to me. Say it to me as a friend. Welcome to the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer, following the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years experience. My name is Valerie Francis, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Here with me are four of my fellow certified StoryGrid editors, Jari Bolander, Anne Holly, Kim Kessler, and Leslie Watts. Each week, one of us proposes a favorite movie that they think is a great example of a key story principle. That editor has to make the case for their position with the help of a partner, while two of us play devil's advocate to check the validity of the proposition. Okay, this week, Miss Leslie has pitched The King's Speech, one of my favorites, as a great example of emotional stakes. This 2010 film, which won Oscars for Best Picture, Best Actor, and Best Screenplay, was directed by Tom Hooper from a screenplay by David Seidler, who himself developed a stammer as a child. Leslie will be ably assisted on the A team by Kim, while Anne and Jari will be on the B team. They're going to test Leslie's theory by evaluating it separately from other perspectives, so that in the end, we all get a complete 360-degree view of the story principle of establishing emotional stakes. Leslie will start us off with the genre and a quick one-sentence summary of each of the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff to help orient us to the story. Leslie. Okay, great. Thank you. This is actually going to be a little more than a sentence for each of these. I apologize for that in advance, but there's a lot going on here. Of course, the genre for the King's Speech is performance with status sentimental, but they are so close together. And because the both genres live in that self-respect and self-esteem tank, it can be a little squishy, as Sean sometimes says. Okay, for the beginning hook... During his speech at the closing ceremonies of the Empire Exhibition in 1925, the Duke of York falters because of his stammer, and initial efforts to treat his stammer fail. But when speech therapist Lionel Logue shows him that he doesn't stammer when listening to music, the Duke must decide whether to sacrifice his pride and comfort to pursue treatment. He negotiates with Logue, and treatment begins. For the middle build, King George V dies, and the Duke's older brother, David, soon abdicates the throne, making it all the more necessary that the new King George VI overcome his stammer. But after insisting that Logue attend the coronation, where his family will be seated, he learns that Logue is not a doctor or trained in speech therapy and must decide whether to continue his treatment. Logue goads George VI into declaring that he has a voice and explains that his perseverance and courage will make him a great king. The king performs his brief portions of the coronation without a problem. In the ending payoff, Britain declares war on Germany and King George VI must deliver a nine-minute speech to the nation, the importance of which is related to the role of the monarch as one who speaks for the people. 
And when the time comes to speak and Logue tells him to say the speech to him as a friend, the king delivers an almost flawless performance. In contrast to the disappointing looks from the inciting incident performance, everyone outside the recording booth cheers the king after he finishes. Okay, first let's hear from Leslie about why she believes the king's speech is a good example of emotional stakes. Leslie, can you also clarify for us exactly what you mean by emotional stakes? I will do that. But first, I want to talk a little bit about why I chose this story. And special thanks to you, Valerie, because this was one of the films that you were looking at to discuss this season. And when you didn't choose it, I sort of grabbed it. I love this film for all kinds of reasons, but I wanted to get to the bottom of why it's such a crowd pleaser. Rotten Tomatoes tells us that this film scored a 95% approval rating from critics and 92% from audience members. It's considered to be the most successful independent British film ever, with Best Film BAFTA and Oscar awards, among others. To earn results like these, you need a solid story structure but you also need to get the audience involved with emotional stakes. So what do I mean by emotional stakes? Emotional stakes come from story elements that create tension that the readers feel, and this compels them to keep reading. This is a little bit different from narrative drive, but it's, but they're connected. More than that, Emotional stakes help focus the reader's attention where and when you want, evoking intense emotions and sparking interest. Characters are the vehicles for emotional stakes, but that doesn't mean they must be likable. Villains who arouse disgust or anger can be as memorable or even more so than a hero who makes a great sacrifice. So what I'm really talking about, and just so I can help you understand the experience of emotional stakes, you've experienced this if you've ever cried or cheered or yelled while reading or watching a story. If you've ever talked to characters who can't hear you, then you've experienced this phenomenon at work. So no matter how many times I've seen It's a Wonderful Life, I always want to grab Uncle Billy by the collar before he loses the building and loan deposits and just shake him. So before I talk about how you can get that kind of emotional buy-in, let's look at why figuring this out is time well spent. Uh, Leslie, let me jump in here for a minute. Are you saying then that emotional stakes are the same as developing empathy? That's a great question because there's a lot of overlap. And don't get me wrong, empathy really helps. But this is a slightly different inquiry um, when we're looking at the emotional stakes in the reader. A classic example of this is Lolita. We do not have to empathize with Humbert Humbert to want to read to the end of the story. His despicable behavior creates interest and makes him memorable, but we don't have to empathize with a pedophile in order to want to read to the end. So why do we need emotional stakes in stories, and particularly in the King's speech? 
Well, the more the reader cares about the character, the more likely they will feel emotionally invested in the result and read to the end. And the same is true when we are just merely interested in them, when our attention is drawn. So once you've persuaded the reader to buy your book, it's not a done deal. You have to convince them to keep going with every page and show them that their time and emotional investment are worth it. The thing is, your surprising but inevitable ending is wasted on the reader who never gets there. So you need to do everything you can to make sure that they do. So we always need an intellectual or emotional hook to compel the reader to finish the story. But it's especially important in a story like The King's Speech when we have a character that most people can't immediately relate to. King George VI, as portrayed in the King's Speech, is not only a person who possesses great wealth, but is a member of the royal family, second in line for the throne as the story opens and crowned king before the end of the middle build. The point is made over and over that he has trouble relating to the average British citizen. There are plenty of people in the UK and Commonwealth and US who are interested in the royal family, and they would certainly be among the core target audience for this film. But the ratings and awards suggest that this story appeals to a much wider audience. In addition, I would say that the events portrayed here are historical, and even if we're not privy to all the details, we know how things turned out. That means that for for the overall story, the narrative drive operating is dramatic irony, where we possess more information than the character does. So something must make us want to know how the protagonist overcomes his external and internal antagonists. Now, we're getting a dramatized behind-the-scenes look at George VI's life, but we need more than just curiosity or nosiness to sit through a film or book. So let's return to that question I asked earlier. How do you get that kind of buy-in or reader engagement that increases the odds your readers will finish the story and want more? So what are the elements of emotional stakes? Well, thank goodness our friend Orson Scott Card has created a handy list, and I'll give you some examples of how they operate in the King's speech. The first is suffering. This can be physical or emotional suffering or both. Intense feeling on behalf of your characters yields intense feeling in the reader, so long as you don't strain credibility and the suffering isn't either trivial or unbearable. There are a couple of great examples of this in the King's Speech, and I'll include more in the show notes, but particularly when, at that time, the Duke of York is observing his father, King George V, delivering the Christmas message with an accompanying lecture afterward about how kings must be actors and that his brother, who is the current heir to the throne, may not be suitable. And then another good example of this is at Balmoral when the Duke of York confronts his brother David for failing in his duties as king. David taunts him then about his stammer. And this suffering just pulls our attention to what is happening. And it does arouse our compassion, but it doesn't always have to be compassion. It's just the intensity of the suffering draws our attention. 
The next element is sacrifice. This is a little bit different from suffering because it's an active choice, not something that circumstances have thrust upon them. In a way, it's a response to the circumstances. So in the king's speech during his first visit with Logue, the Duke of York is asked deeply personal questions. Now, that's just not on for the royal family in general, certainly during that time, but particularly for the Duke, who is a private man, we can understand how much this cost him emotionally, and we are drawn to that moment. Then, of course, the big sacrifice is after his brother David abdicates, the Duke of York accepts the position as king, though it represents a deep hardship to himself and his family. As I said, he's a private man. He wants to have as much of a private life as possible, and it's not possible when you're the king. The third element is jeopardy, and this is the anticipation of suffering, and it directs the reader's attention again and raises this emotional tension. Sometimes the bark is worse than the bite, and the more helpless the character is in a given situation, the more intense the feeling and attraction. Jeopardy actually magnifies the force of antagonism, but note that readers will pay attention to how you pay off Jeopardy and whether the result lives up to the threat. Of course, doing the unexpected is a great way to innovate so long as, again, it's believable and bearable. And Jeopardy is a strong tool that's used throughout this film because every time the Duke and later King must speak in a high-pressure situation, we are on the edge of our seats, worrying, wondering if he'll be able to come through it okay. The opening scene when the Duke is required to speak on behalf of his father is a really big moment. It draws us into the story immediately. People attempt to reassure him, but it's not helping at all. He's in terrible anguish. Everyone is looking at him. The silence drags on, but when he begins raising our hopes that he may pull it off, he then falters and we see how the listeners are disappointed. We see his wife in tears. So the jeopardy that we are worrying about becomes suffering in fact. The next element is sexual tension. Orson Scott Card calls this the jeopardy of sex. And except for the negative connotation of jeopardy, that's a pretty good description. When you have potential sexual partners in the mix, you raise the possibility it will happen and people will notice. Possibility and conflict is more interesting ultimately than fulfillment in this realm. And we don't have a direct example of this in the story because we have married partners. And then David, the Duke's older brother, is in a relationship already. And though he denies having relations with her, (laughs) it's pretty clear that he is. So how is this working out? It's kind of a twist. And it plays out with David, who is infatuated with Wallace Simpson, a twice-married woman, someone he can't marry and be on the throne. Now, whatever we think of the standard, whether we think it's outdated or inappropriate, that was the standard at the time, and the king as head of the church couldn't have a consort who was divorced. 
Well, David's complete disregard for his duty as heir and the way he flaunts this relationship raises our emotional engagement because it ratchets up the tension on the Duke. So whatever negative feelings we have toward an antagonist in the story are generally balanced with positive feelings for the protagonist, and we're interested in both. The final element is signs and portents. We can connect the fate of the character to the events in the wider world through this element. Now, this can be subtle, such as when the setting or weather reflects the mood of the character's interaction, or it can be more literal, like in the king's speech, when a monarch with a strong voice in times of world conflict can pull a nation together. And we see signs that David is not going to fulfill his duties, and he's presented as someone we wouldn't want to have in charge under the best of circumstances. And so when we see Britain edging closer to war with Germany, requiring a strong leader with a strong voice, then we become more and more interested in the way this is going to play out. There's no way we can't sit through the whole thing, even if we're not interested in the royal family, don't care about the duke and the king. We are interested enough to sit through it all. Thank you, Leslie. So here we have another compelling true story adapted into a performance story. But it is definitely a case study in excellence that can be transferred to absolutely any genre. So I wanted to look at the key moments that establish the stakes, both public and private, and how those moments build on one another to give us this emotional experience. Now, admittedly, it's been difficult to narrow down which moments to highlight in the show today because every micro moment of the story is crafted for this compelling emotional experience for the audience. Each one, you know, builds on what came before it and then supports what comes next, which is what we want in a story. So, for example, the opening scene could be an entire case study on its own. From the text that's displayed beforehand about King George V and how he reigns over a quarter of the world's people, to the intense and somewhat comic preparations of the BBC announcer with spraying that thing in the back of his throat and gargling. And that's followed by his entire monologue about the importance of the wireless and this really important address at the end of this world exhibition, where he notes that the address was first given by the king himself two years ago, and then the older brother David the year before, and now it's going to be Albert, the Duke of York, our protagonist. And meanwhile, you know, we see our protagonist standing in the wings. He's got his papers in hand, and he's looking like he'd rather run into traffic than talk to anyone. And this is the first time our protagonist has ever had to be on the wireless broadcast. I mean, no wonder he's nervous. Anybody would be nervous. And we see his wife and her gentle touch of comfort, um, but it's almost as if she knows nothing will really help. And then, of course, it plays out in the climax as he struggles with his stammer. And there's so much silence and all of the faces around him in the crowd that look away. And, you know, we see, you know, tears in his wife's eyes. And this is a crystal clear value shift from respect to shame. And it sets up the stage for us. It's a very clear demonstration of what our protagonist is up against. It's a great example of showing. And this is an example that you could take and apply to any novel or any story. You know, don't just talk about a character having trouble speaking in public. Make them do it and then make them have minutes and minutes of painful silence. 
This immersion into the character's reality creates that deep emotional connection and really sets the stakes for the audience. One distinct pattern that came up for me while I was studying this film is the use of herald moments. That is the use of strong, consistent, well-timed moments that announce what is at stake and made it clear that things weren't about to get any easier for our protagonist. These herald moments were often related to external aspects of the plot, you know, the public stakes, such as, you know, David shirking off his duties, the impending threat of war from Germany. And Sean says in an episode of the podcast, you need to have moments in your story that remind the reader about the consequences and the stakes that are at hand. The herald is a technique in an archetype to have somebody in your story relate that to the audience again. The herald role is really just about having moments in your story where somebody kind of sums up things pretty quickly, meaning they kind of hammer home what your hero is facing and they bring up things the reader needs to be reminded of. You want to pick out moments, usually right before the big moments. And I'll have a link in the show notes specifically to that episode. So here are a few Harold moments that stuck out to me. In the beginning hook, when Bertie's wife first goes to see Lionel Logue and states that her husband is required to speak publicly, and it's just not possible for him to change jobs. And wherein Lionel makes a joke about indentured servitude, uh, which turns out to not be all that far from the truth. And then Lionel says, I can cure your husband, but I need trust and total equality. So this moment, it's, you know, is a fairly small moment, but we know we're meeting the characters together for the first time. And it delivers both the gravity of the situation, that there's really no way for Bertie to get out of having to speak in public, And now, because of the opening scene, we know what that means. But it also delivers hope that he can cure him, but it will cost him something. Uh, In in a a, a scene just a little bit later, where the king is reading the Christmas broadcast effortlessly uh, and sounding totally at ease, so many things are said in the scene. Um, It's the first one that really shows what's at stake for Bertie. The king acts as a major herald, laying it all out. There's the expectations of the people. Nowadays, they want you to, you know, come right into their homes. There's the external conflict with Hitler and Stalin. And there is the conflict with Bertie's older brother, David, shirking his duties. And then he says, who will stand between? You? And he says specifically, you're going to have to do a lot more. So this takes what was joked about as being an indentured servant, you know, to a whole new level, which I think is really important for the audience to see and understand, not just in in any story, but specifically here where we have such a divide between the classes and us not really knowing what it's like, you know, to be a member of the royal class. And then we have the really fun montage of training and progress, so many silly things that happen, which uh, are a lot of fun. And we really feel that uptick of hope. Um, And so we're thinking things are going to get so much better and hooray. But then in the middle build, we see that the king's health is failing. Guardianship has to be instated. And we get this first glimpse of David's infatuation with Wallace Simpson. And it's really shown here. He acts like this lovesick puppy on the phone. This is one of those quick moments that conveys so much. And we can see how very different the two brothers are and how very differently they take their duty when it comes to serving their country. 
Another poignant moment occurs when it's when the king passes and David sobs on his mother's shoulder and she can't even hug him back. She just stands there kind of stiffly and doesn't even put her hands around him or anything. It's just, it's so awkward to watch. And this moment is really important because it shows the environment that they were both raised in and it acts as a good setup for Bertie's tell-all that's to come soon. And that tell-all comes the week uh, after the king passes and Bertie comes to see Logue at the office and he opens up to him about his childhood and all of the events that created his stammer, his abusive nanny, his harsh parental environment, the leg braces, and there are moments that he has to sing in order to even say them, which has a real haunting effect. Who were you closest to in your family? Nannies. Not my first nanny. She, she, she loved David. Hated me. When we were presented to my parents for the daily viewing, she'd be... She'd pinch me so that I'd cry and be handed back to her immediately. And then she would... Sing it. Then she wouldn't feed me far, far away. Took my parents... Three years to notice. It ends with a small exchange where Bertie thanks Lionel, and which Lionel says, that's what friends are for, and Bertie replies, I wouldn't know. These are some really deep, intimate connections where Bertie's finally able to communicate to Lionel these personal, personal facts and personal truths and backstory that he was absolutely unwilling to even broach at all at the beginning. Then we have a confrontation between Bertie and David regarding his infatuation with Wallace Simpson and his duty to be king. David accuses Bertie of trying to take the throne, and Bertie absolutely falls apart, and he cannot say a single word to him. And it's just, it's like all of his progress is completely out the window. And I thought that the sequence of events here is really important. Having Bertie confide in Lionel about his childhood before he has this confrontation with David and he clams up, it really puts that moment into real powerful context. We can infer so much now because we know what Bertie went through as a child. And so now having him face-to-face with his brother and his brother picking on him again because he's trying to do the right thing. It's so frustrating, and we can begin to empathize with how frustrating that must feel to not be able to get your own words out. And then we have an all is lost moment with Logue, where everything falls apart there. Birdie's now on his own. And then we experience a sequence of scenes that act very much in these Harold-esque type moments. So the prime minister says that the government will have to resign if David doesn't renounce his relationship with Wall Simpson. We have Churchill, who comes in and says war is coming with Germany, and he asks Bertie specifically which name he will choose as king. And again, Bertie can't say a single word. He kind of just sits there and visually chokes. We have David renounces the throne, and we see Bertie has to sign some paper. He's clearly agitated. And then he has to read a statement to a group of officials in this room full of these royal portraits. And he's just staring them down. It's as if they're just staring at him and judging him. 
So this whole sequence builds to our dark night of the soul where Bertie is at home and he's in his office and he's trying to go through documents that David had and he's just sobbing, I'm not a king, I'm not a king. And we get this beautiful moment where his wife tells this sweet story about how she refused his proposals more than once. And it's this powerful moment where she flips the shame and respect values on their head because she praises his stammer as one of the reasons why she married him. And I just thought that was such a a beautiful, sweet, tender moment. Things turn around. We get back. We see Logue. We make it through the coronation. And then we have this moment following the coronation where they're watching the reel, and it's Hitler giving a very impassioned speech to the Nazis. And one of the daughters, Elizabeth, asks her father, you know, Papa, what is he saying? And he says, I don't know, but he seems to be saying it rather well. And we really see here the power of the voice, a clear depiction of the stakes of that a country's leader must be able to speak. And clearly part of the reason why Hitler was so powerful was because of his ability to orate with passion and get his message across and have people buy into what he was saying. We ratchet up the stakes again with the prime minister resigns, war is announced, and then there is this final speech that he must give. So here we are at the end of the film, and we're at the height of these external stakes. You know, we're at war with Germany, and Bertie is going to have to deliver this wartime message. But we can only really appreciate his specific role having to, you know, speak on the wireless and deliver this announcement worldwide because we've been so intimately immersed in his personal stakes. So you can see here through the King's speech how there are poignant moments, and there's so many more than I've even mentioned here. They're setups and payoffs. They're herald moments. They're showing and not telling. They're giving us a real immersive experience into what is at stake, both personally for the protagonist and externally for the country, the family, Um, the world. And so really taking note of how you can make small moments set up larger moments later is a real takeaway that we get from the King's speech. Thanks so much, Kim, for those details. Those are really rich and, and useful, I think. Great examples. Before we turn this over to the opposition, I wanted to mention that this story is also a great example of an anti-Virgin's Promise story in which the protagonist is reluctant to shine while others around them encourage them to reach for fulfillment. Now, of course, that's not the main topic today, so I'm not going to discuss the details here, but I'll include the conventions and scenes for the anti-Virgin's Promise story in the show notes. Thank you, Leslie. Thank you, Kim. Before we move on, I just wanted to bring up something that we talked about last week, that I talked about last week when we studied Inception. At that time, I said that for dramatic irony to work, it's essential to have a compelling protagonist. Otherwise, the audience won't engage emotionally. What was anxiety in suspense becomes compassion in dramatic irony. So Leslie said right off the top that we're in a state of dramatic irony here because we know the story of King George VI. But in this film presentation, the filmmakers and, of course, Colin Firth have made Bertie hugely compelling. And that's what we're talking about here today. So now I'm going to turn it over to Anne and Jari so that they can test the proposition that Leslie and Kim have put forward. Anne, would you like to go first? Yep. 
This movie was so good. I had not seen it before. And the reason that I hadn't seen it before is that I tried watching it a couple of months ago. And I had to stop watching it because the emotional stakes were so high that I couldn't bear it. And that's a personal thing for me. It's not because I share his fear of public speaking, even though I understand that about 75% of the population would basically rather die than speak in public. I'm one of the minority here who obviously has no problem holding forth endlessly in front of a microphone. It's obviously also not because I can relate to the British royal family, but it was the fear of humiliation because that I can relate to. I could so easily imagine Bertie's feelings. And I kept saying, oh my God, that poor guy. When I had to sit and really get through it for the podcast, I just, I had to really force myself through those deeply, to me, what seemed like humiliating moments. So, Leslie has pointed out that we feel empathy for this character, even though he's a, an entirely unrelatable human being in a lot of ways. He's the king and emperor, he becomes the king and emperor over the largest empire in history. And in order for that to work, he has to be cast down low enough for us, the average person, to feel something about his triumph. And they did that, as, as Kim has pointed out, by building up empathetic tension early in the, in the opening scene. But I also wanted to point out, Jari made this point a couple of weeks back, uh, a few weeks ago, when we did the movie Rudy. He pointed out that if it had been the story of the sporting triumph of a great athlete and a natural-born winner, it wouldn't be much of a story. But you put this little awkward guy, a little determined dude like Rudy, into the football field, and we've got something to root for and someone to root for. We can sort of relate, even if we've never played football, etc., we can imagine his feelings because we've had feelings like them ourselves. So Leslie's tour of, of uh, the five elements of emotional stakes that Orson Scott Card has given us, it, it was really brilliant. I had never heard those. It gives the big picture of how emotional stakes work. And I'd like to just take a minute to look at the detail level, the line-by-line -line choices that the writer makes. And one of the things that I have read recently is uh, John Gardner's The Art of Fiction. It's a real good book. And he talks a lot about verisimilitude. This word is a great word. All writers should know this word. It means literally seeming like truth. It's a feeling of reality. It's behind when I'm always talking about stories are not real life and characters are not real people. You have to give them verisimilitude, not actual truth. Gardner rags on a bit about the dictum that writers should only write what they know. And that's often given to young writers, especially. And it's often misconstrued to mean only write about places and people and events that you've actually experienced. And if that were a law that writers actually followed, we would have no, you know, one ring to rule them all, no ghosts of Christmas past, and no Mark Watney on Mars. There'd be no stories about kings except those written by kings. So you get the idea. So Gardner goes on to say, the fact that the story is true, of course, does not relieve the novelist of the responsibility of making the characters and events convincing. And he goes on to make this important point. The primary subject of fiction is and always has been human emotions, values, and beliefs. Novelist Nicholas Del Banco, whoever he was, has remarked that by the age of four, one has experienced nearly everything one needs as a writer of fiction. Love, pain, loss, boredom, rage, guilt, and fear of death. The writer's business is to make up convincing human beings, make up convincing human beings, and create for them basic situations of action by means of which they come to know themselves and reveal themselves to the reader. 
So what makes it possible for stories like this one about a king written by non-kings to feel real and emotional, relatable to an ordinary person like me? Verisimilitude. I feel like the cowardly line, courage, verisimilitude. And what makes verisimilitude? Detail. So our story wisely opens up by providing very carefully chosen details. You'd think that all of it was just scene setting and it serves that purpose. It builds the world, right? We all need to do that in our stories. But what do we tell and what do we not tell? What do we show and what do we not show is a key question. And you can watch this movie for days just looking at what isn't shown, okay, and compared to what is. So, for example, we first see Bertie. I'll call him Bertie too, Kim, because he feels like a friend to me. Uh, we first see him wearing this very formal top hat, right? And we see this ritual that the BBC announcer goes through, which, as Kim says, was hilarious. And we see a long bank of radio transmitting equipment, each one labeled alphabetically with the names of countries in the British Empire. Every detail in that opening scene conveys the enormity of Bertie's responsibility and the enormity of the restrictive pomp and circumstance that surrounds him. It's the top hat, right? He's like a prisoner going to his own execution as he walks down this bleak corridor. Who knows in reality whether that corridor was bleak, but they made it bleak in the story to convey this idea that he's like walking, the looming microphone is like his execution. So the question to ask yourself in watching an emotionally engaging movie or reading an emotionally engaging novel, and this is emotionally engaging to you, is which details? Which ones do they leave in? Which ones do they exclude? The anxiety rises in the beginning for this poor guy who's like the third most privileged person in the entire world. And he goes up to that microphone and the final detail is long pauses, and then he manages just a few explosive syllables. All the faces turn toward him. His supporters look down. And then the scene cuts away mercifully. It's like cutting the camera away from a horrible murderer or something. It's just like, oh, thank God, we don't have to watch that whole thing. And everyone, it had had become unbearable for everyone, including the audience. And that's verisimilitude. We don't know exactly what happened in reality. We don't care. The story gives us what the story wants us to have, which is pity, empathy for this person. So in the interest of time, I'm not going to list a whole bunch more of these details or any of them. But like almost all Oscar-winning screenplays, this is a masterclass in right details. And it's a great exercise to just watch the movie, pick a single scene, and notice what isn't said, what isn't shown, and how the specifics that are left in create the whole world. It's like a fractal or a hologram kind of, the detail that creates the whole world, right? And creates your emotional engagement. It's like a world within a world within a world. I like this movie. Uh, but, you know, because this history is so rich, we all know about royalty. We all know about World War II. We all know about this context. A lot of work in world building's done for you. So if you know you're going to do this as a novelist and you need to build your own world, you mean you're going to take volumes in order to get this all right whereas the writer in this case had all the context every single person on the planet is in some ways knows what happened during World War II. This is a real challenge. Any type of these historical movies get the benefits of history. As an example, 
you know, we talked about the Hitler speech where George is watching or Bertie, I'll call him Bertie since he seems like a friend as well, uh, is watching the newsreel and Hitler's speaking. And he's like one of the best orders in history, even though he's like probably up there in the top one or two evil people in the entire planet. But he's impressed by how well he can orate because he knows he's got that deficiency and he's going to need to do something. I mean, he, he really needs to figure out how he's going to speak to the people. I just would not want to be in Bertie's shoes ever. I wouldn't, tr- I wouldn't trade his life for, for, for all the money in the world because can you imagine having to go up against that? 25% of the world's people hang on your every word. That is an amazing amount of pressure that clearly rose to the occasion after working hard. And I think that's what you feel as a viewer and a reader and why you do have some empathy for the guy. But I don't think that you really have to build as much sympathy for this character, given that it's in the historical context scenes how we know how the British monarchy works. We know how the British people think. You may feel like, well, that's unfair. And you may, you know, you may think, well, why doesn't he just do what his brother did, which is basically just not a very English thing to do. I think in the entire history of the English empire, I think that's only happened maybe two or three times. This movie benefits from history a lot. And if you're going to build a world, you have going to have to take a long time to do that. I mean, you have to have pages upon pages upon pages, you know, like in Game of Thrones, where what, seven books are going to be seven books and eight seasons. What's even better is there are no composite characters in this entire movie. Every single person in this movie was real. Colin Firth pretty much nailed exactly how he talked, exactly the cadence, the stutter, and all that detail, which again, history is, you know, again, you can't make this stuff up. It's it's actually a really great position to be in. And Lionel's grandson found a bunch of papers that were his notes. These were Lionel's notes from when his practice, as well as some letters between Lionel and Bertie. And so they would read, the actors would read these notes and use that in the movie. So a lot of the movies based on his actual notes. Now, the thing that's kind of made up is his actual technique, Lionel's technique. He never talked about. So when they're flapping their lips and then they're singing around and doing all that sort of stuff, that wasn't what Lionel did, but that's based on a composite of everything. So even in the case of where they're kind of making up the therapy because they didn't know, that's still based on the kind of therapy that um, would happen. I don't know if you could have picked a more perfect story to do a adaptation on because you've got all the historical context, you've got all the notes. The reader is going to feel empathy, is going to feel for these characters because they've been almost conditioned by the history of this. There is, I don't think anyone that has ever read this or the history that hasn't had would have some sympathy for the gravity of the situation that Bertie is launching himself into. There's already, I think, a built-in baseline for how people are going to feel about it. And that doesn't mean that the screenwriter who did a, a fantastic job doesn't want to put more emotion in there, but he had a lot of help from history. 
All right. Okay. So there's way more to this establishing emotional stakes thing than I ever dreamed possible. Before we clue things up, I want to toss it back to Kim and Leslie to see if uh, they have anything they'd like to say in the way of a rebuttal. Ladies. Okay, so I had just a few more tips that I hope will help you apply this concept of emotional stakes. You know, it's vital to show what the experience means to the character in the context. And this is really coming through in the examples that Kim shared. It's not just a matter of increasing suffering or creating greater sacrifices. You'll notice that George VI suffers and is put in jeopardy because he cares about the role his family plays in the nation. It's not simply embarrassment or shame. The depth of the feeling comes from his sense of duty. Another thing that's really important in this context are cause and effect. Otherwise, the stakes become bare manipulation and unlikely to encourage rereading or rewatching. So, like all people, places, things, and events in a well constructed story, the elements of emotional stakes should have a cause that is, arise from something organic within the story and result in a logical effect. Another thing you'll want to look out for is variation. So just like progressive complications and turning points, using the same method of increasing emotional stakes throughout the story can fall flat. You want to shake things up a little bit. Finally, more often than not, these elements are better shown than told. And we got a lot of this from Anne's discussion about those minute details that show us the meaning and draw our attention and pull us into the story. Now, it may seem funny to talk about evoking emotional intensity in your readers because they're individuals with unique frames of references and and experience and emotion, and we can't really count on making them feel a particular emotion. But to a great extent, readers will take from a story what they bring with them and what they need. So, That's not really what we're talking about. What you can do is create the conditions that will allow them to become involved in the story, to experience intense feelings about your characters, and carry that with them long after they've finished your story. Okay. Has our analysis of the King's speech help you better understand how to establish the emotional stakes in your story? Have you analyzed a story from the perspective of the emotional stakes? And if so, how did you handle it? Let us know on Twitter, at StoryGridRT. To wind up the episode, we take questions from our listeners. This week's question comes to us from Faye White. Here's what Faye asked. During the Level Up Your Craft workshop that we did last summer, I think we had discussed how the five commandment moments of an act may not require a whole scene to dramatize. Sometimes it's just a beat. Is it also possible for an act-level commandment to take more than a scene to fully dramatize? This is another great question, and Faye, to be honest, I had to give it a little bit of thought. (laughs) I was trying to imagine a scenario where, say, the turning point for an act happened over a number of scenes. Now, I'm not prepared to say 
no, categorically, the act level commandments cannot happen over multiple scenes. But I can't think of why you would want to or need to do that. And I also can't think of an example of when it has happened. So if you have one, let me know, because I'll be curious to take a look at it. What I'm wondering is if you're thinking about sequences rather than scenes. So when you're asking if an act level commandment can take more than one scene to fully dramatize, I think what you're asking about there is scenes or sequences. Sorry. Remember that the five commandments exist in every unit of story, beat, scene, sequence, act, subplot, and plot. So while there may be a sequence of scenes needed to set up an act level commandment, the commandment itself will still be one scene. So you could have a turning point sequence in the middle build for argument's sake. And that would be a series of scenes needed to establish the turning point when it happens. I hope that makes sense. And I hope it helps to answer your question. Okay, for the rest of you listening, if you have a question about this episode or the story principle that we talked about today, you can ask it to us on Twitter at StoryGridRT, or better still, by going to storygrid.com slash resources, clicking on Editor Roundtable Podcast, and leaving us a voice message. That wraps it up for this week. Thank you so much, everyone, for your excellent editorial insights into the King's Speech, which I'm starting to think is the perfect story. <laughs> We hope our discussion today has helped you understand how to establish the emotional stakes in your story. You can find links and additional material in the show notes at storygrid.com. If you're interested in hiring a certified StoryGrid editor or would like to find out more about what we do, visit storygrid.com editing. If you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. And finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can do that by telling other writers about us and by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Join us next time for a special wild card episode when we drill down on the five commandments of storytelling using the film Coco. Why not give it a look during the week and follow along with us? Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. In this grave, our perhaps the most fateful in our history, I send to every household of my peoples. both at home and overseas this message spoken with the same depth of feeling for each one of you as if I were able to cross your threshold and speak to you myself.